Welcome to The Beauty of Horror, a podcast dedicated to exploring the unsettling beauty found within our favorite genre. Each episode, I usually sit down with a different guest to discuss a horror film they find particularly beautiful and why. However, we are in the second week of our oopy, gloopy, and nasty segment on disgust. So for the next three months, we're going to be talking about some really deeply disturbing, disgusting films and trying to unpack all of these feelings that we get on an aesthetic level for disgusting things. I'm your host, Chandler Bullock, and today my guest is a horror writer and historian. She is the managing editor for Daily Dead News, as well as the author of the recently released Monsters, Makeup, and Effects Volume 1. Beautiful greetings to Heather Wixon. Hello, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. I know you have a very busy schedule, and I really appreciate you taking some time to sit down with me today. Oh, I'm I'm very excited. And I love the fact that I got to introduce you to something new as well. So that to me feels like a bonus. Oh, did you? Oh, did you? Uh, <laughs> we'll get on that in a bit. In fact, this is going to be a really special episode for a lot of people because I just finished this movie. So I'm still processing a lot. Um, but before we get there, I do like to start each episode off with a quote that pertains to our topic. Usually it's from philosophy and today is no different. So the quote that I have today it doesn't necessarily talk about disgust in such a clear, stated, philosophical way, but it's more of a concept that I found from an author that I thought was interesting that we'll bring in later. But the quote is as follows. To know a DDB, otherwise known as a deformed, destructive being, is to get the DDB inside you, to have your mind become the DDB. This language is useful because it expresses the intimacy of knowledge, the extent of the union between the knower and the known. I will reveal who said that later and why I decided to discuss it, well, at least to bring it up in our discussion today. But first, Heather, uh, I want to welcome you to the show and to ask you for all those who may not already know your backstory, but I'm sure plenty of people do, you know, you're Heather Wixon, um, still... <laughs> Where did all of this start? Like, are, are you one of the people who's been a longtime horror fanatic, or is it a genre that you've come to kind of gradient into over time? Uh, it's definitely one that uh, hooked me from a very early age. I'm a little bit older, so I kind of grew up, you know, during the 1980s when parents kind of let kids watch anything. And also at the time, my mom was a single mom. So she often just took me to movies um, because babysitters were kind of expensive. So I think one of my very earliest in-theater memories that I have is actually sitting in the theater for An American Werewolf in London at like age three. Whoa. Yeah, Whoa. I don't recommend that movie for three-year-olds, to be really honest. Whoa. But the only thing I really remember from it is that I remember sitting there in seeing the scene when uh, they're in the porno theater, which I didn't know what that was at the time, but I just remember thinking like they're inside a theater, but I'm in a theater and it felt like I was inside the movie in some ways. And oh. my mom had brought her best friend with as well, who's kind of a real big, uh, uh, it's my auntie and she's, she's very, uh, she's much of, very much of a scaredy cat. And so I think at some point she said to my mom, like, Oh, Heather looks scared. I'm going to take her out, which <laughs> I probably wasn't, but I think she was. And so I think we spent like the last like 20 minutes of the movie, like 
playing Pac-Man in the lobby of the theater until my mom was done. But yeah, like I just, it, it was great. Cause like, even like my best friend who lived like two houses down, her parents were really huge into like horror sci-fi. So I think I might've seen alien at like age five, uh, which again is not a movie I would show a five-year-old. I think that was right around the same time I saw the thing. Um, and it was interesting cause it always, stuff always scared me, but I always came back to it. And like every time we would go to the video store, you know, that's generally where we always headed to is the horror section. And then uh-huh. at a sort of, I forget who it was like, it was around eight. And I discovered this movie called Terror in the Isles, which Screen Factory put out a Blu-ray for uh, last year. Um, but I, for me, like for anybody who doesn't know, it's, so basically it's Donald Pleasance and Nancy Allen sitting in a movie theater basically talking about like horror movies and to me that was like my education and i remember one of my favorite things to do was to use the artwork from the movie which was like a skull that has all these movie titles in it and i would go and look for these movies in the skull like in the in the actual video store and start renting stuff randomly um which is how like i ended up like scarring my best friend because i think shortly after (laughs) one of the first movies we rented was suspiria Ooh, nice. Yeah, and that's, again, not a movie I would definitely, like, show eight-year-olds, you know, at any time. Like, I just think it's, maybe it's a little early. Um, and she still talked about that for years afterwards. In fact, I think a few years ago she even mentioned it. So, obviously, that one worked. But, yeah, so I just always really loved it. Like, I was kind of the weird kid, like, who grew up basically loving horror and wrestling, which meant most of my yeah. friends who were girls had no idea what to do with me. And so basically I just always hung out with like the boys because they kind of realized I was cool. Like before I was actually cool. (laughs) So, um, but yeah. And I just, I never imagined like in a million years that like that kind of stuff would actually end up leading to a career in any way, shape or form, which is why I'm really grateful that I've been able to be a part of this for as long as I have, because I never imagined, you know, me falling in love with, movies like Fright Night or whatever would end up leading to like something that I could actually call a career. That's incredible. It's always incredible for me to hear anybody who's, you know, being successful in this field based on just a passion, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you have always been because of your, you know, early, uh, exposure to some classic horror films you've always been that individual who seems to have kind of guided people to the right path and and kind of teach them about it along the way and look where you are now you're doing uh horror film history you were in search of darkness as well which is kind of like that you know terror in the isles was the name of the film you mentioned was that, yes am I getting that right? yeah so in a way you kind of had your own little moment there just not in a cinema which is Super cool. How did that feel for you to be in a documentary like that? Yeah, it was great. In fact, um, I don't know if most people realize, but I actually helped produce the first one. Um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of moved away from it after that. But it was really interesting to be a part of because one, I've always wanted to work in documentary. Of if I always joke that like if there's some sort of pop culture documentary out there, I will find it and I will watch it. <laughs> it's just it's something that's always spoken to me because I think there's a lot that can be said about our own culture that comes through sort of the lens of pop culture. And um, so that to me was really interesting because the first one, especially like I was really involved in terms of like trying to bring, you know, certain notable people from the community on board and then getting to like talk about stuff. 
which I'd never really gotten to do before. So it was, it was exciting in that regard. Like I was, I, it was, it was kind of a really big pinch me moment. Um, I will say it's still weird to like see myself talking about things <laughs> and I don't know that I'll ever get used to that. And it's funny cause I actually, it's, uh, I actually haven't watched part two yet. And I always, and the only reason oh. I haven't is cause like when I went in to do the new interview segments for part two, it was right like in the thick of the pandemic. Um, not that we're really, mm. I mean, we're not out of it yet, but we're, we've progressed a bit, but it was, it was so strange because like, you know, I hadn't really been out of the house much. And so I show up for this and it was the first time that like I had been out of the house and was asked to take my mask off. Hmm. And I had a little bit of a panic attack, like right before the oh, interview. No. Yeah. And it was one of those, like we started talking and I just like looked at the director and I was like, you know what? I'm going to need like two minutes because my brain is totally freaking out on me right now. And I just need to like mm -hmm. take a few breaths and just, you know, do a little, you know, bad boys, Martin Lawrence, Wusa and rub my ears a little bit. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, so I've kind of been nervous to watch that one because I don't feel that my interview for the second one was as good as the first, but I will be back for okay. the third. So we'll see, maybe I'll oh. be able to rebound a little bit. <laughs> no, okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I had the pleasure of getting a screener for the second one and to review it briefly. Uh, and I liked it. I really loved your segments. You, you know, you came across as very knowledgeable in your field and, you know, showing people what sort of basis and knowledge, but also passion you have for that era of horror filmmaking. So at the very least, if you didn't feel that you were feeling very good, they made you look very good. They, oh, okay. Well, that, that, nice, that makes me so. feel better. <laughs> I was always happy when you popped in. It was like, where's Heather? Oh, it's a Heather segment. And this is going to be some good shit. Oh, thank <laughs> so, you so much. <laughs> I, I was super. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you now is I was so impressed when, you know, seeing people that I've seen on Twitter in a documentary like that, but also alongside all these horror legends. And then, frankly, seeing a lot of y'all be the ones to, like, nail it, you know, about all the things that they experience making. But it's because you have the knowledge that you've gathered over the years, but you lived it from the other side. You yeah. Know, the people who were watching it when they were coming out. So you still knew the, uh, I hate this word so much, but it's like the zeitgeist of it all. <laughs> uh, my skin is crawling. Well, it's good. We're talking about disgust today. So, um, <laughs> so that fits. but yeah, no, it was awesome. And I'm really excited to see what you got for the third one. Thank you. Yeah. They just sent over the list of stuff. So I think I'm recording that in like a week and a half. So Okay. Got to brush up on some good movies in the meantime, but it's, it's always fun. It's always fun prepping for those. Oh, I imagine, especially since they're all just like 80s classics and stuff, or, or even the deep dives that you get from the 80s. I just imagine there's so many gems that you get to experience that a lot of people haven't, and I'm sure you have multiple times already, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. So, I mean, that that's so cool to hear, and um, I'm curious then, okay... When did you go from this fanatic who just kind of drifted into the horror section to someone who was like, I want to share my thoughts in a medium where people can actually take it at their leisure? Yeah. So writing has always been something that was like hugely important to me. Like even as a little kid, um, 
it was funny because we were talking earlier about like the fact that I had, I had to do some creative writing for a class that I'm in right now. And I hadn't Mm -hmm. really done that in a long time, but growing up, like the school that I was in, like in elementary school, we always have like these young author contests every year. And I will say from like first grade through fourth grade, like I always placed pretty high. And in fact, second grade, I actually won the district award for it. And so writing was always something that I loved. And as I got older, um, I was able to sort of channel that towards journalism and doing like, you know, newspaper work and stuff like that through my different schools. Mm -hmm. But then like you graduate high school and you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to do journalism as my, you know, minor because nobody, I I didn't really know like how to make a, like a career or a living out of it. Um, And I was looking at things a little more practically and then once I sort of had to quit school traditionally for a while, I just kind of put it on the back burner and just sort of let mm-hmm. it sit there and kind of focused on, you know, all of my adult obligations. And then, you know, it was basically sort of a situation where then, you know, at like 22, I got married or 23, sorry, and kind of focused on all the things you're supposed to do then, like get a house and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of settle into these the sort of adult rhythm of your life. And uh-huh. it just made me really like bummed out because it just, I felt like there was this thing missing. So for a while, like I want to say in like t- 2005, like I started looking into writing for like my local newspaper. And so for there, I was just doing like village board meetings and that kind of stuff, which was really boring, but it got me back into <laughs> things a little bit. And honestly, like when I was really, you know, thinking about coming back into writing, I just didn't know like how you went out and started writing about horror movies or things like that. Um, Like I knew of the sites, I knew of Bloody Disgusting, I knew of Dread Central, I knew of Shop to You Drop back then. I just didn't know how to do that. And I remember it was also probably like around 2000, the end of 2006, beginning of 2007, I was sort of dealing with some stuff in terms of my marriage at the time as well. And just kind of struggling trying to figure out like who the hell I was. And we were, we were sitting at this uh, horror convention. There's a, in Chicago, there's a horror convention there called flashback weekend. And I used to go every year as a fan. um, But what's nice is now I get to go back and co-host, which is kind of cool. And I remember sitting there and my ex was there and my cousin was there because my cousin always came with us to stuff. And it was the year that Adam green was there promoting hatchet. It was right before hatchet came out. And he was talking about his D. Snyder story. And which if you watch like the Hatchet special features or the Frozen special features, I know those two discs in particular have it. But basically like, you know, he sort of came up a similar way where, you know, he thought he had to do certain things and ended up, you know, being able to go out and become a filmmaker. And he just talked about like, you know, if there's something you're passionate about, find a way to do it. And I was just kind of sitting there like, If I could do anything, it would be writing about horror. And so I remember like, it might've been, I don't even know if it was a week later, um, but it was, it was within like, it was pretty quickly after the the convention. I just happened to start looking on like Craigslist because I was like, well, maybe I can find something to sort of do part-time. And I found this job listing for this upcoming small horror website. They don't really exist anymore, but it was called Terror Tube. And they were looking for people to do movie, like horror movie reviews. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. So I reached out to the editor there and, you know, he was like, yeah, let's do this. And so 
I remember, I think my first review was The Invasion, which is the the movie with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. Uh, which I don't remember liking, but I, it's funny. I'm, I, now that I'm hitting sort of my 15th anniversary, there's a bunch of movies like from that year that I want to go back and rewatch to see if they hit differently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I started off with Terror Tube, and then it was kind of like um, I ended up becoming friendly with Adam Green, who was really helpful to me early on. Like he got me in touch with Anchor Bay because they were still really in the thick of things with horror. And their publicist, who was great to work with, and kind of got me like sort of in the door. And, um, so basically it was just kind of like, I just started kind of make my way. And then, uh, green was, uh, producing this other movie at the time. And that movie ended up going to Sundance in 2009. And at this point, like I'm already, I'm at this point, like I'm now officially going through divorce, which is costly. Um, we basically had two houses going into foreclosure um, because of the mortgage crisis that hit in 2008. Um, I was working like three jobs and writing at the time, but I knew I needed to get to Sundance. I knew there was no way they were going to like accept me as press. And so I used to do these like jewelry parties. So I sold off like basically all this like jewelry that I had collected to all these ladies in my office that I was working at. <laughs> so I could go to Sundance and cover this. And because of that trip, I ended up starting to do some work with Dread Central and which was sort of another step towards, you know, kind of upwards in the ladder. Um, and the irony that I was, that was so funny is that like months before, uh, the former editor at Dread Central had put out a notice like, oh, if you're, you know, if you want to write for us, you know, send us an email, which I had done. It didn't hear back. But then I'm at Sundance and he reaches out and he's like, oh, hey, do you want to do some stuff for us? And I was like, oh, so now I'm okay to talk to, <laughs> um, you know, but that person's kind of out of the loop these days. So I think that says what needs to be said about them. Um, but yeah, so it was just, and then it was like, and it just all sort of like collided with like a few weeks after I got back from Sundance, like I ended up losing my job in Chicago and I had never been fired from anything. It, it, eventually the company now is like maybe five people. Like they, everybody kind of had to go. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I was sort of at the beginning of all of that. And I had had a trip planned to Los Angeles anyway for my birthday a few weeks later. And I was like, well, it's already paid for. I'm still going to go. And then I decided like, you know, maybe I'll just send out some resumes to some places in California and see what happens. And I was actually getting on the plane to come out here. And this person called me like, Hey, do you want to come in for an interview tomorrow? And I was like, sure. Sure. And so I I basically, once I got to play in California, I immediately had to go and like, go buy like work clothes for a job interview. Cause I didn't pack clothes like that. And on this vacation, I essentially ended up like getting a job out here. Which was great because it gave me more access to being able to do this kind of stuff because now I was working more with Dread Central and, you know, being able to do studio stuff and be over out here and like having that connection, you know, back, it's, it's less vital these days, but, you know, back in 2009, it was very much more of a sort of a necessary evil where you kind of had to either live in New York or LA to do this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I basically went home had five days to pack up my life and then came back. And, you know, that was kind of like how it all sort of started for me. And then, you know, I spent a, about four and a half years at Dread Central and then um, 
ended up coming over to Daily Dead. And it's it's been great. Like, I've been with Daily Dead now for over eight years, which I can't even believe. Wow. <laughs> I can't imagine being anywhere for eight years. I've been at the job that I'm at right now for about three and a half years of which two of those I've had a position like within their like admin sphere mm-hmm. and I'm loving it, but I'm also like, how am I here? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm such a person, maybe, I don't know, maybe I've just gotten let go of places and didn't realize it, but uh, <laughs> I just seem to feel more like nomadic. So to hear eight years, it just says to me like, what a good time, you know, to, to stay with that. Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, it's great because like when I came in, it was like, you know, Daily Dead was pretty small and, you know, it, we, we had very, you know, we didn't have huge traffic numbers or anything like that, but, you know, my boss, Jonathan had this passion for what he wanted to do, you know, what he wanted to achieve with the site. And we were really sort of able to team up together and really chart a new course. And I'd never been able to be involved with something like that. And I loved that challenge because like when I first started, like getting anybody to like put me on their press list through through Daily Dad and things like that. Like it took a few years until we really started to regularly hear about like interviews and things like that. So I'm really proud of all the work that we've done and that we built up like such a great team. Like it's just nice to work for a site where people aren't competing with each other, which wasn't necessarily yeah. the case at Dread Central back in that those days. And that that's not a, any sort of saying anything about anybody who works for Dread Central now, but back then it was a lot different. Right. Completely different team nowadays too. Yeah. So, you know, it was just one of those, like, it was like, wow, we're, we're building this together and we have all these great people and that's really cool. Um, and we're, you know, we're still not the biggest And honestly, like I'm proud of everything we do, but we'll never, we're probably never going to be the best, but I look at what we've been able to achieve you know, in those eight years. Right. And I'm and I'm genuinely proud um, of it all. And it's nice because it wasn't always like that. So to have that kind of experience, like I'm really grateful for it. That's just wonderful to hear. Really just, you know, this whole story, I think a lot of people who are listening to this are probably aspiring to be in this same industry or are working on it themselves, peers of mine. And I, for one, am very empowered by a story like this. And I can just imagine many others who are just kind of smiling if they're listening to this. Just like, it's it's okay. Things aren't always going to go the cleanest, nicest ways. But if you keep to it and you have that passion and you really remind yourself of what you're doing things for and that drives you, it's always kind of worth it, right? Yeah, it is. And the thing is, it's like, I always tell people because I see a lot of folks who are like, they just sort of assume like certain things happen because they're they're doing things. I'm trying to think of the best way to say it, but like Mm. sometimes you have to put in a little extra work to get where you want to be. Like just because you start a website doesn't necessarily mean like you should be on everybody's press lists immediately. Mm -hmm. Like you have to put in the work to show that you're worth, you know, these other entities time and things like that. And, you know, so I always tell people like, you have to be a little patient, you know, when you're in this field, because it's not going to happen immediately. And if it does happen immediately, like enjoy it, love it, relish it. Um, you. you know, I'm like, that's, that's amazing. But I know for, for myself, like it took, you know, it's, it, it, it was interesting to go from a site that was considered one of the top three to then a site that was, you know, basically building itself up and having to sort of recalibrate my own expectations of what, you know, I thought I was not entitled to in the way that like of a sense of entitlement, 
but that like, well, of course you're going to want to talk to us. We're a horror website. And it's like, yeah, but Mm. you know, where do you fit in compared to the others? And so, you know, I always tell people like, look, there's, there's two ways. Like if you want to make this like your actual job, like you you have to figure out sort of the best way to do that. And I mean, I did it in a way that I wouldn't recommend to a lot of people because it was just, you know, I put a lot of things in my life on hold for it. Mm-hmm. And now as I'm, you know, been doing it for a while and I'm a little bit older, like I'm trying to sort of recalibrate myself a little bit. Uh, cause I tend to just work too much. Um, I don't know how to not work. And so I'm kind of, I feel you there. Yeah. Like I just, but it's like, once you get to a certain age, like you're just like, okay, but why am I doing this? And it's one of those like things like where I'm always kind of like, I'll be like, oh, I'm so busy and I've got all these things. But then ultimately I'm like, yeah, but I'm always going to be busy. And there's always going to be a lot of things. So you have, you have to take time for yourself. So I'm learning how to do that now 15 years in finally. (laughs) (laughs) It's little baby steps. There's certain days that are easy to do that than others. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the one thing I'll always tell people is never set out to try to duplicate what other people out there are doing yeah. because that's, that's just never going to work for you. Like you have to, you have to find your own space. And I think once you do, that's when success hits because people are going to respond to that more than they're going to respond to you trying to be somebody that you're not. And I think ultimately, like, you know, when I was the days that I was at Dread Central, like, you know, I'm always going to be me. And so I was always me in my reviews. And they were always looking for people who were a little bit snarkier, a little bit funnier. I was a woman. They, you know, generally wanted their reviews back then from a dude. Mm-hmm. And but I never I never tried to change that because that's not who I am. And so I think one of the things that sort of has been able to give me the longevity that I've had is that I've always stayed true to who I am, like coming into this and I've never tried to change that. Like, you know, I still geek out over things. I still get really excited as a fan as much as I have to be a professional. A lot of the times, like I still genuinely get excited by things, you know, simply from a fan's perspective. And I think when people kind of lose sight of that, I think that's when it's not as fun for them. Oh, for sure. I've lost sight of it many times in my life. Oh, and it's totally easy to do that, too. Yeah. Even as a fan, like, I've just been in circles before where they're just, you're talking about the snarky people, right? So you have a lot of toxic people as well who just want to, like, debate and then mean it to each other. And it's like a taste war. And I've had that so often in my life that I had a whole, I think, good, like, six, seven-year period where I was like, "Ah, yeah, I watch horror movies and all, and I'll put it in my, you know, work at university. But outside of that... I wasn't talking to anybody about it. I wasn't telling them. I wasn't trying to get in with other horror fans because I was just like, wow, I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> These conversations are wearing me down. So <laughs> I was. it was hard for me to say I was a horror fan because my finger wasn't on the pulse anymore. I had no idea what was coming out anymore other than what I cared about. Yeah. And I had to learn to just care about what I care about, not be too fussed about what other people want you to care about necessarily, and just have fun. Enjoy your stuff, basically. And you're right. The moment you get that click back and can hold on to it, it's just such a wonderful, relaxing feeling to just be excited and happy for things. And of course, there's a place, especially if you're in a field that is more, say, analytical or coming from like a sociopolitical perspective or any other mindset that might need to look more at those sorts of nuances. I I have a hard time turning that off too, but... 
I enjoy that. So yeah. for me, I'm really excited to dig into a movie. And so that not, not, might not be everybody's thing, but I'm not going to do that with my friends. You know, from with my friends, we're just like, this is the time to shout at the screen and have some fun and be kids again. And I love doing that. And I think I hope everybody finds an opportunity to keep doing that, basically. Yeah, it's one of those, like, especially these days, you know, working um, in terms of like, doing like the history stuff with like the special effects industry. Like I have to tone myself down sometimes during movies because like I'll start going off on these effects tangents. I'll be like, I'm the only one who really cares about this in this very moment. So I'm just going to, just going to hold on here. Cause like, and, and it's funny because like, I'll be sitting there watching movies with my other half and he'll, like, and he always will know, like if I'm like wanting to talk about it, cause he'll be like, wait, who did the effects? And I'll be like, okay, pause it. And then like, we have this big discussion about it. But it was funny because, like, I actually had a question uh, last week. We played a couple rounds of uh, the horror movie Trivial Pursuit. And um, they actually asked an effects question I didn't know the answer to. And I was shocked. Well, it was like the question was, like, you know, of these four materials, what wasn't one of the materials used in uh, John Carpenter's The Thing? And apparently toothpaste was not one of the materials used i guessed creamed corn because i don't remember anything looking like creamed corn so but i was wrong so you know in case anybody gets that Hmm. question now now you're 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 caught up in that regard you're caught up you're gonna blow people's minds knowing this one yeah but i was just (laughs) like well of course they use toothpaste because like you know that's such a easy material to kind of like fake for a lot of different things Mm and it's crusty yeah so basically, I was just like, I, I guessed cream corn because I was like, nothing looks like creamed corn to me in that movie. But this is why I need That's to find Rob Bottin. So that way I'll never yeah. run into these problems again. No, no, for sure. You learn, right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> so speaking of gloopy, nasty effects and discourse and all the things <laughs> that we've kind of explored, um, I think all of these things apply quite nicely to the film we're going to be discussing today. And so for all of the listeners, could you please, Heather, introduce what are we talking about today? Yeah, so today we're going to be actually talking about one of my very favorite movies of all time, which is Andrzej Zulawski's Possession. Mm, And you know what? I think as of today, definitely in my top five as well. Oh! That's awesome. I was blown away by this film. <laughs> there, so normally I'm going to jump into a synopsis. We'll do that because I like to get the IMDb synopsis and just see if we are going to roast it or agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> but I just have to say, since I just got off of this movie, there are films in this pantheon of filmographies of everyone and, and horror and everything that have a lot of hype. For different reasons and usually iconic moments whatever and this is one of those movies that always just felt to me like i don't know what i'm in for and i had multiple feelings about it and amazingly it's never been spoiled for me like only the one that's incredible because that movie's over 40 years old now i know and i don't know how i've only ever seen the subway scene that's all i've ever come across and i was like oh that's really impressive I don't know what that's about. And it's kind of moved on because <laughs> I, I was just busy with other things. And then my boss actually at the uh, games development studio we work, I work for, Logic Locks, he's a huge fan of the film. He's also German and I can see why he'd be extra into this movie. Uh, and he had a screening at his house, but I was working so I couldn't make it. 
And so it's been one of those movies that's just kind of like drifted around me and it's like, you're going to experience me one day. <laughs> like it was this ethereal thing that I was like, there's no way this movie is going to live up to the hype. There's not a single way. There's not a single film that I have seen that was a classic that lived up the way people described it to me. Uh, good, you know, topical discourse thing right now, although this is coming out a few weeks after the discourse, but, you know, you have the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So I, one of the earliest moments for me to, like, really mess myself up with, as a horror fan was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at, like, the age of, like, 13 or 14, just getting it on a DVD. And I had heard a lot about it, but, you know, people like to pitch it as if it's some sort of really dark, gory slasher movie. And what I got was way more intense and disturbing in a different way. And I just wasn't prepared for that movie at all. So I had a different relationship with it. This one, I'm amazed that you can say very little about it. And it just, I get it. Yeah. I get why this is such an important film. And I still have a lot to absorb. Because <laughs> there's so much that I'm still trying to figure out from this film. Um, and I, I think I'm in good hands here to discuss it and help guide me through it. Um, so, yeah, we will, I'm going to gush the whole way through and uh, just, like, we're going to go places. Because this movie really, it, it it took me in a bit of a, a tornadic whirlwind along the way. Yes, there's, that's, that's, <laughs> that is inescapable, I think, when you see this. In fact, I, had, I actually didn't see it until 2014. Okay. And because, like, I think here for a while, like, Unless you had um, like the Blu-ray or anything, like it just kind of didn't. It wasn't really a movie that streamed very often and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I ended up seeing it at Beyond Fest because they played it with a, a double feature with Starry Eyes. The directors of Starry Eyes oh, got to choose what a, a movie. Double feature. Yeah, got to choose a movie to go with it, and so this was the movie that they decided to play with it. And I remember just like sitting in the Egyptian theater, which again is like this gorgeous, like just filled with history type of theaters, everything there just feels so much bigger in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And I like, they did like a a discussion afterwards. I couldn't even tell you what anything they might've said during that discussion because I was still (laughs) just so overtaken by this movie. And I, and I remember like when I was, when I left the movie, I went and got my car and was driving home. I think I sobbed the entire way home, too. I can imagine. And, you know, and I've seen this movie probably at least another 20 times since. Whoa. <laughs> and, but there's the thing is that's so great about it is like there's just so much to pull apart. And it's a movie that mm-hmm. still is so anxiety inducing and it's so frenetic and, and chaotic and grotesque and beautiful. But it also makes me sad in a way, but also sort of hopeful. It's so, it's just, it's such a singular experience that it's like, it's a movie I will always recommend to somebody to see because I just feel like you have to experience it to really understand. When people talk about this movie, like, just to sort of take it from a secondhand account of it, you're never going to get it. Like, even just seeing the subway scene, you're still never going to get it. Until you actually watch it within the movie. So I'm so glad exactly. we got to do this um, and that you got to be able to fully experience it now. Fuck. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I de- that I definitely did. Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to go up to my boss now and be like, I get it. Because like, <laughs> his passion for it, uh, he loves movies. 
and he's a psychologist, so he comes from a different perspective than a lot of the people I know. But you know, I come from philosophy, so we we kind of meet somewhere halfway of like, yeah, yeah, you feel that. And for him, because of that, he is he can like a good, you know, kind of a hot mess kind of film that's just for fun. But for the most part, he's like a big snob when it comes to horror movies because they really need to shake him up. And this is probably one of like the two or three movies that he's ever had that he just thinks like it fucks me up every single time I see it. It's there's something about it. It just feels wrong. I can't explain it. You just need to see it. And he keeps telling me like, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. <laughs> and like, he knows my brand of horror. He knows what we're creating with all these experiences as well. And the way I try to like dig into our player bases, like mindsets and stuff and make it as immersive as possible. That real grandiose sublime feeling. And you're right. It's got all of it. This is like like aesthetics. The horror film is basically <laughs> like I cannot wait to watch it again and again and again from different lenses and really try to hone in. In fact, the only thing I think that may have kept me from just letting it wash over me was I was still going like think disgust, think disgust. You got to do it <laughs> the right way. Um, Here's what IMDb says. This is a synopsis for anybody who hasn't seen it. And we've now gushed about it a bit. We've mentioned that there is an iconic scene, but we haven't spoiled anything yet because we will. So please do yourself a favor. Have you not seen this? Do not listen to this podcast episode until you've done so. I normally tell you to just like, come on, stay with us, whatever. It's your choice. I'm not your keeper. But you really just want to heed my words here. Experience this film and then see how we felt. Yeah. Because I think that's the best way to go about with this one. Here's what IMDb says. A woman starts exhibiting increasingly disturbing behavior after asking her husband for a divorce. Suspicions of infidelity soon give way to something much more sinister. Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't even get through it. Um, as IMDb is very good at, they're not wrong. No. <laughs> but that's maybe the first 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, which is funny because, like, again, it's one of these movies that, like, I mean, we could sit here and talk talk about this for like five hours, probably, and yes. we probably wouldn't even get get through everything that no. that's going on in this movie. So it's one of those again when, um, probably one of the reasons that I do watch it as often as I do is because I'm always looking for these other aspects to it. Um, I just think that there's something really endlessly fascinating um, about everything that's going on in this movie, and I know that. Historically, I know this was a, an incredibly difficult movie for everybody involved to make for obvious reasons and not so obvious mm -hmm. reasons. But to me, like, I love when a movie can, like, I know where, like, my boundaries are as a viewer. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. And I love when a movie will just completely obliterate any of sort of these self-imposed boundaries that I have for myself. And that's what this movie does. Like, this movie doesn't care that you're used to a traditional narrative and structure and things like it doesn't, it's going to take you on this ride and you're going on it. And whether it clicks with you or it doesn't, that's all on you, but it, it's, yeah. it's definitely like one of those movies, like you genuinely, if you like, like you said, if you haven't seen this yet, please don't listen any further because you really should just go watch it first. But the only thing that's really tough about that is that, I don't like I think I think there was a new 4K that had come out overseas. Mm -hmm. Um here in the states the Blu-ray that came out a few years ago from Mondo Digital is now officially out of print and I was 
genuinely oh, fortunate to get it like right before the prices started to increase. So I think I only paid like 30 for it, but now it's like 120 if you're oh, looking shit. for it online here. So, so I'm hoping, <laughs> yeah, so I'm hoping at some point, cause I know every once in a while it'll show up on some of the, like the streaming services. Um, mm-hmm. One that I always recommend to people, if you're listening and you haven't seen it, you want to check it out, but you don't want to spend $80 on the Blu-ray blind buy, totally get it. Uh, Canopy, which is a streaming service that's uh, that runs through your local library system, you should really check into them because I know I actually had to watch this before I was actually able to get the Blu-ray, and so I was able to rent it through them for free. Mm-hmm. And so I always recommend Canopy to a lot of people because they, if they don't have something, they can usually get it. That's so, so and they cool. yeah, and it's whether it's like you rent the actual disc or finding it digitally. So, um, right. canopy is actually for those, you know, here in the United States, like that's a, it's, it's one of those resources that I think is kind of overlooked a little bit, but it's all free and it's all run through your library. So you're, you know, supporting your libraries as well. Damn. All right. I might have to check that out. See if I can get the library at my mom's uh, town to, to link up to that. Um, also obviously anybody who's studying at the moment, Please don't forget to make use of the libraries you have at your universities, especially if they have a film library. You will be surprised of all the classics and obscure movies that they have waiting for you. Maybe not the best quality. We're talking old bargain bin DVDs, but it doesn't matter. I don't feel that this movie has to be seen in 1080 or 4K to be just an overwhelming wild time. You know, Some films the sound quality or the image quality really betray the film. So it's when they get those remasters that you get that second wind of people who were normally not into that kind of film suddenly discover they're totally into that kind of film. They just couldn't deal with the the quality of the image (laughs) and stuff. Uh, And so uh, I've had that with a few DVDs. Uh, I remember, well, for one, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like, I had to watch it a lot because I had a DVD of it. And I was just like, I don't know, it doesn't sound that good. When I saw it on Blu-ray and 4K, I was like, this is it. Yeah, when you get that real sound mix, I think is when yeah. the movie like amps up to like a completely different degree mm-hmm. than it is previously. Because like, especially like if you're somebody like me who grew up watching it, like on VHS, yeah, like you know, it's just got sort of this graininess and sort of like fuzziness, and it feels, you know, kind of like this like little like tiny little movie. But I think once you get like that that five point one mix, and that sound can really do what all the things mm-hmm. that it set out to do. Um, it's a totally different movie. Um, yeah, we actually get yeah. to see it at the drive-in. Um, speaking of Beyond Fest, they did a thing like over the summer of the pandemic, like 2020, where they were doing double features throughout the whole summer. And one of the nights they showed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that was like incredible. Because I thought, I thought that I actually thought it would be a little diminished in the car, but it actually... I think sitting in the dark in your car and not being able to see around you like really helped in a lot of ways where I was just like, oh, this is kind of more unnerving than it usually is for me. So that was kind of fun. (laughs) There's also something about seeing a film in just a different setting than you're used to as well, because I've had a few other films like seeing them at festivals when they had revivals that just obviously they're a bit more heightened because it's a cinema room. But at the same time, it was just the fact that like sometimes they just brought in like a really crappy print. And they're just like, this is what we got. We're just putting it on a big screen. It was just something about being in that chair that made it really weird. Or I've seen movies like in a lobby at a cinema. It's just magical. Yeah. Just seeing movies in these different settings. So I'm very curious, like the different ways possession would work. Because my boss, he actually showed it at his house on like a rooftop 
you know, on the terrace. So oh, wow. I can only imagine what that was like with all of his housemates and stuff. And I, I hate that I wasn't there, but I'm also kind of happy I saw it alone at home. So, well, not alone with my partner, but still. Yeah. In the, in the comfort <laughs> of my, my little comfort bubble. <laughs> um, but yeah, Possession is just, there's just so much. I, okay, where to begin on this? So we're talking about disgust. And I think, uh, you know, we can start early, actually, because they use the word a lot in the film. Yeah. So you have... Anna and what was, is it Mark? I want to say. Oh, um. Mark or Matt? Oh, um. Mark. Sam Neill's yeah. character, it's Mark. Yeah. So you have Mark played by Sam Neill and you have Anna played by Isabella Adjani, I want to say. is Adjani, yeah. Adjani, okay. It's a j- uh, and just from the get-go, you know that there's something wrong with their relationship. That they're just talking a bit vaguely about these things happen, you know. I'm like, oh, that's never a good way to start your movie. <laughs> And from there, like, you disgust me, I'm disgusting, the way they're shouting at each other. There's this disdain for each other. And, of course, it doesn't become clear at all until around the end of the film, if you can even say then it's clear. You know, a lot of it, I think, is definitely the director getting out a lot of frustrations. I know he was going through a divorce when the film was being made. Or might have just finished his divorce uh, right before the film was made. Yeah. So that animosity comes through quite strongly. And for me... And, you know, maybe, I don't know how things were, and you you can only, I'm going to be pretty open about things, so you don't have to, you don't have to follow my lead here, but I also went through a divorce about seven or so years ago, and, you know, we were married, I was married at the age of 18, and okay. we stayed together for almost 10 years, and a lot of that time was just, uh, for me, it yeah. was kind of going through the motions, and... In my situation, you know, I had moved to another country. She was definitely a caretaker for me in a lot of ways. Really made sure that I was on my feet and we took care of each other. But I, you know, I didn't speak the language, didn't get a job. I was a dumb dude in like his early twenties <laughs> who was just lazy. Uh, there are a lot of problems in a lot of directions, and just that that emptiness I felt there for the last few years. It started to like eat at me and eat at me and eat at me, and we had a lot of pretty bad fights because of it, and. I was thrown back to a lot of those fights in this film. Nothing so visceral on a physical level. You know, there's no blood or anything. But just some of the things that they were saying to each other, the way Anna would just kind of have this whole, like, will you just leave me alone kind of thing. Like, <laughs> I'm here to do the thing I'm supposed to do at home. And you're just asking me the same questions over and over and over again. And so she just goes haywire and just tries to, like, find a way to make it stop with all of these different outbursts and ways of just causing physical pain to get rid of the mental pain amongst whatever the hell was happening to her along the way. Um, it, it was such an interesting, anytime I see a film like this, that has these sorts of moments, they break me. I'm yeah. just like shattered. Oddly, this one was cathartic and I don't know why I was just kind of like, yeah, it just felt like such an honest, like I know that feeling and it was okay. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm fresh off the boat. Maybe I'm going to be like crying my eyes out after the podcast, but uh, I was okay. I I was just really thrown into it though. Yeah. It was interesting because, um, you know, as somebody went through a divorce, there's definitely a lot of things about this movie that really hit me. Um, And in fact, last year, um, because every year on daily dead, we always do a class of series where we celebrate like a specific year of genre movies so last year was class of 81 mm-hmm. and I sort of worked it out to where I 
wrote about possession on what would have been my 20th wedding anniversary. Um, Definitely not weird at all, right? Um, (laughs) It's just a normal thing that people do. Um, But I'm I'm with you. And I think that's ultimately, like, I think that first time I saw possession and when I left and I just burst into tears, um, I think it's because, you know, there's such a power to what you see outside of the divorce and the, the sort of separation issues that are, are between these characters. But I think for me, it was like just this watching this breakdown of a marriage and how yeah. visceral it can be and how, you know, you, you start off in this life with somebody else who you fully commit to and you fully trust and you put so much of yourself into it and how ugly that can turn and how it, you know, it transforms people into these versions of themselves that they didn't know even existed. And, you know, for me, that was really what I saw in it in myself because uh, very much like you, I I just felt really lost. And I, I spent so many years trying to live up to the expectations of Mm -hmm. my ex and his family um, and this, and I, I'm not one of these who's sort of like, oh, my ex, blah, 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 you know, hate him or whatever. Like, because mm-hmm. honestly, I was the person who actually initiated the divorce. So I, you know, I was just one of these where like, I knew ultimately that like, we both would be so much happier apart. Like we could have probably stayed together and probably continue to just be miserable and lived with it. But what, like, you get one shot at this life thing. Like, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe that would have been easier, but it wasn't the life that I wanted. And he was very non-receptive to it, Mm -hmm. um, to the point where I think there was a lot of not-so-great things that happened during our divorce. And some lines were crossed and things like that. And ultimately, like, I had to turn into a different version of myself, because any time that I would show even just the the smallest like f- kindness, that was like his way of being like, oh well, you don't really want this. And I'm like, no, I'm just trying to be a human being here. Like, yeah. and I turned into a really terrible person for a good year and a half to two years. And at the same time, it was like I so seeing, you know, Isabel's character, you know, of Aunt, of Anna in this movie, like. I I got it. Like I I was the person who was going out and disappearing for you know days on yeah. end. Um ultimately also at the same time because around the same time like the the housing crash was happening, gas prices were like super expensive here in the states and yeah. the house that we had had because we had a house that we owned and in the same time we were having a house built and we thought we would sell the first house. Um but we didn't. So we ended up having to rent that out for a while. And so we were living in this house we had built, but it was honestly like 44 miles from where I worked. So driving back and forth was just super expensive when gas is like yeah. 5.39 a gallon. So okay. I ended up like, like my mom actually lived like five minutes from where my, my day job was. So I was like sleeping on air mat- like in an air mattress at my mom's house for like eight months. Um, throughout this whole thing. And then on the weekends, I would go crash at like some friend's house uh, in the city. And I was only coming home like maybe one night a week to like do laundry and see my cats. And because I just didn't even want to be in that house. And so he had no idea like of this life that I was building without him. Like I was 
making new friends. I was in a bowling league. Like I was going to music festivals and everything like that. And, you know, it was just, I was turning into this person he didn't even know. And I remember like once I was on vacation, it was like the summer of 2008 and I took a week off because I was going to do Lollapalooza that week. But I was like, I'm just going to take the whole week off. And we happened to cross paths in the house and he said something like, oh, you know, hey or whatever. And it was like, I had forgotten what his voice sounded like. And I was like, Mm. oh, okay, this is strange. And, you know, it's, you know, there's, there's people who are able to, to navigate the, the, the realm of divorce in a positive Mm. way. I wasn't one of those people, which is sort of strange too. And I, and I say this and hopefully like, I don't think he would be, but I don't, hopefully he's not listening or his new wife, but like he was already dating his new wife when we were going through our divorce and he was still trying to stop the divorce. And I'm just like, Mm. you're starting this new life. Go have it. Like I, you need this, like, you know, go do these things. And he was like, we don't have to go through with this. And I'm like, you're already dating somebody, but we need to do this. And so I had to be a really, a really horrible version of myself. And it was really hard for me to reconcile because it's not who I am. And I actually, last year, like in my piece I wrote, and I was just like, like looking back on it, like, God, like, I, I think that's why I just sort of broke down after I saw this the first time, because it just sort of hit me, like, who I had become through that process and how grateful I was that over the years I was able to sort of unbecome that person um, and sort mm-hmm. of be kind of reclaim who I was. And I think that's what's interesting too about this because of ultimately how everything works out because you have sort of these doppelgangers and sort of these new versions of Mark and Anna that we, we get to see at the end of the movie. I think in some ways that's what I find, even though it's, it has sinister undertones because it's not them, but it's like the better version of them in a way. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's okay. Like maybe, you know, even though the monsters win here, like maybe that's okay. And I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you though. I've, but maybe, you know, maybe it says a lot about me too though. Cause I've definitely always been like that fringe kind of person. So, you know, if you feel like a monster a lot of the time, then you see a movie like this, you're just kind of like, I'm happy you succeeded. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's about time that we get to see people who are off putting for no reason other than existing to just be like, it's my time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and, you know, hey, to, to not throw your ex out there too much, I mean, to, to feel, you know, singled out. I was in a very similar situation. I also ended my relationship. Honestly, we kind of mutually ended it just because of how things went. I also I hadn't started a relationship in the middle of it, but I did start to have feelings for somebody that was a mutual friend of ours. And I had told her who's my current partner, actually. And I, I was just telling her like, hey, we're friends, but I keep looking at you and I keep thinking about you and I don't want that to get awkward. <laughs> uh, and I think that it would be if I were to feel the way that I feel, I would be a bad friend if I didn't tell you. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell me if that's too weird and that we find, you know, we just find a way to not do this then because uh, I'm not gonna dictate how you have your friendships or anything but this is what's happening and um she's like okay don't really know what to do with that you're married all that I'm like yeah <laughs> I, I totally understand this and uh 
I'm like, I'm not asking you to date me or anything like that. I was just like, I, I don't know. I just felt the need to tell you because also she was one thing I just saw with her is like she was she wasn't like lonely or anything, but she was single, like very much so in, in the sense of just like lived her life. And I admired the hell out of that. And I don't know. I just felt like she wasn't the person that was always getting people like tripping on their feet to, to be, you know, be with her or anything because she was just living her life. And so she was kind of oblivious to all that. And I'm just kind of like today you get to know from somebody, maybe not the person who gives you no stress to hear it from, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I just wanted to let somebody know. And I, honestly, I had just in that relationship just been so like, convincing myself that it was okay and that this is just how love is right that love is just such a complex feeling that it isn't always the strong connection you have with somebody it's just love it's just there and to an extent i can understand this but i do think that there are just different kind of levels and layers to love in that regard yeah that it's it's different kind of love and it wasn't the kind of love that i really owed my partner and we were miserable and fighting all the time and finding reasons to fight with each other because we could just feel it in the room that something was being unsaid, which is exactly what happened. You see it with Mark in the film, how he's constantly berating Anna of like, who is he? What is it going on? All this. And she's just lying about shit constantly. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> I didn't go that far because we weren't in for one. I wasn't financially stable enough and in my own country to just go, let's have this big fight and I leave. Um, so I was very careful about it and also had this feeling of like, look, you are happy in this relationship. I'm not going to be the one to hurt you. And I said that to myself constantly, like if, if ever that happens and she find and she ends up getting hurt somehow, we'll talk it out. We'll see what's going to go on, but I'm not going to be the one to like initiate anything unless it gets too bad. So I was just like, if she's happy and she's done so much for me, why would I take that away from her? You know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, it's the least I can do is make somebody happy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, one of the things that makes marriage a very interesting and difficult situation, especially if you do it when you're young or you do it very quick, is that you, if you drift and you, be, you change as a person, you don't really get to do that. It's just not, and it's not to say that that's any social thing. Uh, there are some, you know, families out there that really feel that way but it's really more like oh shit i am connected to this person i have made a vow to this person and when you aren't really thinking about them and considering them in your changes in life the moment you do that guilt just falls on you like a wall from a building basically and you just kind of like snap awake of like what am i doing what's happening i can't just do this for me this isn't possible i have another person to think about i think uh, shit. And what really happened here is that she saw the text. She was kind of getting a little suspicious. I think my partner, uh, was getting a little too close, I suppose. Just, she was over a lot, but she was always over a lot anyway, but it's just more like the way she was sitting, that kind of stuff, who she was paying attention to. So she asked for my phone because her phone wasn't working and went to the bathroom and then she just checked my phone and then came back and then she texted me like, we need to talk. So I just asked, we had like a, a bunch of friends over and I was like, I think we need to end the night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, there were fights and everything. And I know that I destroyed her and not in like this mean kind of way, but just the, the sheer action of me telling her like, look, like if you're hurt now about this, like this is what it is. This is the honest truth. And uh, I suck basically is kind of how it was. 
Um, and you're right. You turn into a person that you're kind of not just so you can make reality as clear as possible to another person because they're in a place that you it took you years to discover they have to do it overnight yeah and it's it's fucked up you you know you it is a cruel thing to do to somebody and it's a horrible thing to do and you have to become so cold to not like you know i mean, i wasn't necessarily cruel about it we did have big fights though cuz she's really good at like getting on my uh you know weak points so of course there was some shout fest still uh, but it's just like, I don't know. I, I had to just shut off. And over the years, we, I still, we keep each other at a distance, but it's not like we're at each other anymore. I don't really let her. I understand if she were to try, cause I mean, it's, it's a horrible thing, but, um, seeing this movie and seeing the way, you know, it, maybe it is the whole like doppelganger thing. I liked what you were saying about how afterwards you do kind of discover like who you were before you had this relationship. And yeah. that's a person that you may have actually shunned for a while because you have to erase them to kind of meet not necessarily the standards of your partner. And this is the case. You know, I'm just saying like not necessarily those things because every situation is different, but you do build a version of yourself. That is just, this is a version that is in this cohabitation and partnership with another person. So you think together and you think the same way, but then all the sensibilities or even the very least just tastes and, and personality traits that you had from beforehand that you may have squashed a little bit because they caused conflict. You get to explore more because you're alone. And it's been an interesting ride <laughs> from the last <laughs> few years. Uh, and just seeing this movie, like that allegory now, it's funny. I, I actually was initially coming into this. I'm just going to bring it up this way just to kind of like lightly touch on the beginning and then get to all the gross stuff. And then I realized like what you were saying, just it struck me so much of how that's the whole movie though. It, it takes this weird cosmic twist to it. But at the end of the day, you're right. It's about a different version of these people who are very happy with who they are and are also kind of individualistic in a way, which I think those are the best relationships where you are together, but you're you that, you know, yeah, no, totally. (laughs) Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's it's funny because like even like after I got divorced, like I was kind of like, oh, you know, I'm just going to give myself a year to like date around and stuff like that. And I ended up meeting my partner like probably like two months after I moved here. Um, mm. So that la- that lasted about actually about ten weeks after I moved here. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, now I'm done. But I think that that there is something interesting, you know, about you know, again, we're sort of jumping towards the end. But like, if you think about like sort of those final moments of of this movie where you know you have sort of this other iteration of Anna in the form of Helen who is uh Bob's teacher mm-hmm. and then you have sort of the new version of Mark just standing on the other side of her door just wanting her to open the door it, but then you also have this backdrop of like these explosions and sirens and things like that and it's just such an interesting moment where it's like, you know, the minute that these people, that these versions of these people come together, like that means something so profound in a way that mm-hmm. escapes just the, the immediacy of their relationship. 
and again, it's one of these things like I, I've read a bunch of different things about possession over the years. Um, in fact, if you get the Blu-ray, like um, the special Mondo digital Blu-ray that came out a few years ago, they have a great little uh, booklet that comes with it that has some fantastic writing on it. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying, I know it's from time out. Uh, it's Tom Huddleston, not Tom, uh, Tom Hiddleston, um, <laughs> where he kind of goes into some of the different aspects of it. And I, I think for me, that's, it's it's a movie that is so profoundly intimate, but yet grandiose. And I've yet to really see yeah. a movie that can balance that, like balance something that is so introspective to so many people when they watch it, but ultimately is examining these themes that are about the the like the entirety of human existence as well, mm-hmm. and to do it so seamlessly and so like just the the how well it all works together thematically it's like it's it's astonishing and again it's one of those movies where i'm like it took me so long to see it i felt like i was one of the last people like you know sort of in the horror community in los angeles who actually even see the movie where like i just i actually kind of wish i'd seen it during my divorce because maybe that may may have felt made me feel a little bit better about things but i you know i i think timing is everything um and i think for when i did see it it really gave me an appreciation for what I had come through and who I was still come becoming on my own terms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that there's something really telling about, you know, you have Anna who essentially is, you know, I don't even know if it's, if it's even a real thing or if she's just saying it to get under Mark's skin, but she's like saying how she's always been messing around on him. And, you know, we know Heinrich exists, but, like, was it really beyond Heinrich? Or is she just saying that because it's just something really hurtful to say in that moment? Yeah. And I and it's one of those things, like, even when you go back and you watch it again and again, I don't even think you'll ever have that answer, to be really honest. But I don't think, you know, that Andre really wanted to give you that answer. Because ultimately, the only truth that really exists is in this movie and in lives that we live are the truths that we actually know ourselves. Um, Which I think is also sort of a terrifying thing to even contemplate. Oh yeah. That's where the cosmic horror of it all comes into play. You know, what is it, what does it mean to know anything and who is to say that the way you experience things is the same as anybody else. So what is truth in that sense? Yeah. And I, can see he went through a divorce uh, for sure, uh, not just from the the domestic part of it, but when we're talking about these feelings, I think a lot of those thought processes for myself also started around the time of my divorce. That it is an interesting situation that can create this self reflection on that human condition side of things because you start to reflect on why am I saying these things? Who am I? Do, what did I mean? What did I not mean? What do I not know about them? All the paranoia, but also you start to see things, depending on where you are in, in this situation, of course, but at least from my perspective, I started to see things more in this, like, I, I wanted to empathize more from my ex's perspective while shielding myself to really discover, like, but where am I right? You know, where did I mean what I said and stick to it and can't let that go? In this whole thing of like, you know, like you were saying, you become a different person. Part of that is that we say mean things in fights and relationships. And sometimes it is just to hurt the other person. And especially in my situation, 
Sometimes I meant it. Most of the time, it was because either she was causing me some sort of emotional turmoil and I was snapping like a caged animal, like Anna in this film, or like Anna in this film, if you want to have that reading of her saying, oh, yes, I slept around with everybody. It's like, I want you to go away. That's where I was. I wanted her to leave the relationship. So I was trying everything in my power to show her, this is me. This is what's inside me. This, there's this horrible rage. There's this disdain, this shitty person that you keep defending that you should just fucking run away from. <laughs> yeah. And it, it makes you go like, but is that you? Because when you start to believe that, that, and I, that's usually what happens when you get to the divorce phase, is just like, wow, I'm alone now and I'm a shitty person because you've been proving it for so long, you know? And to see this film approach this in, in the way that it has of kind of showing where people are coming from without ever answering questions. It's a very evocative film. It allows you to sit within emotions. It uses aesthetics to get across a lot of different things. For me, I, I mean, doing what I do, ugh, just, ugh. it's like, that's the only response I can give on a clear cut. What is your feeling on this one? Just, ugh. Ah. Oh. <laughs> uh, more of these movies, please. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, I think, and again, it's one of those things when you look at like the way that everything is staged in this movie, I think the first time I watched it, I felt like, I felt the way that like Andre was sort of like framing everything like he was it was almost in a way to like purposefully frustrate viewers because like even in that yeah. very first conversation that they have like they don't even say anything like i want a divorce you know you can't have a divorce it's just like you know it's just this conversation of like you know you know why do you need this like it's 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 so interesting to me that the way like he frames this because he's he's asking a lot from his viewers and even like throughout a lot of the discussions, like, you know, it's, I always kind of joke sometimes where I'm like watching stuff where I'll be like, you know, if you just said like one sentence, this whole thing would just be all cleared up. Yes. Because I think so many of us think that in real life that we say the things that we're, we need to be saying, but we don't, we really don't. And how many times have you been in a conversation where an hour later you're like, oh, I should have said this, or I should have mentioned this. Yeah. And I think that there's so many fascinating little gaps that happen in the relationship of Anna and Mark in this, where they're, you know, talking about different things. And like, it's almost like they're having two different conversations at times, because I think exactly. ultimately, when you're at a point in your marriage where you're not communicating properly, you're not hearing each other. You're just saying things at each other. And thinking that the other person is listening. And these two people are not communicating. They're talking, but they're not communicating. And in that sense, they also then get to explore. It's a bit of a gender binary here, but you know, you do get to explore like a more masculine approach to this and a more feminine re response to it. Or at the very least, through these different foils of characters in that sense. I don't know if it, it's one in one, because honestly, I really related to Anna throughout the whole thing. But then again... I also identify as gender fluid, so uh, I don't know. I, I I tend to have a more feminine approach to traditionally, it seems, or at least response. And it, it was interesting to see with Sam Neill's character, with Mark. I've had those too. Like I have very masculine responses with my ex of just like you just plow through and just keep having your conversation. But I liked how Anna it was. She was doing the same thing, but it was clearly affecting her. 
It, it, yeah. it's just this noise, this white noise that she felt so much pressure, which shows that there's still a part of her that's kind of emotionally invested in the relationship still. She's still holding on to what that connection was between the two of them. She just knows she needs to get away from this and get him away from this, knowing now knowing that, you know, there's some apocalyptic levels of uh stuff going on. Maybe she was kind of trying to do a good thing and then Mark is just like being annoying. <laughs> <laughs> the whole way through. <laughs> it's like, dude, just listen, read the room. Damn it. Just read the fucking room. Um, and yeah, it was just, it's such a interesting way to explore emotions in a film. Just show it to us on a visceral level. Give us just enough to relate. But you know, like you're saying, don't answer things. If you answer things, then it takes away the fact that people have their internal monologues and how they're feeling. Hell, they even had to do this with the footage from when she was a ballet teacher and how she's just talking to the camera, basically, and then soliloquying about her musings and philosophies, which you can see even that far along, because he said she had been out of work for over a year. Even a year ago, she was doing the thing where she was talking to him, and he's just kind of filming her and not having a conversation with her. When she's like, I'm trying to like explore something dark here with you. I've got an emotional problem uh, and uh, he's just not into it. Oh, the, mm, I think we could go on for days about <laughs> the relationship between these two. So it's, yeah, we're, we're over an hour in and we haven't even discussed like the, the question I try to, to start with things with, which mm, for me shows a really good discussion, but I want to know when I approached you for the podcast and you chose disgust for the section you wanted to, dis to discuss, what made possession come to mind for this particular aesthetic category? You know, I think, I mean, one, you know, you have this monster that is, is a, a big part of the, the story in here, mm -hmm. which was created by Carlo Rimbaldi, who most people will know because he created E.T. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's such a very different creature Whoa. we're talking about here. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's so many sort of sequences in that sort of love like that sort of hideaway apartment um that really are it's 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 not a great environment it's gross like uh -huh. it's you know everything about it just feels dirty you know the creature itself is just got this like film to it it's got like you know the slime and the gnarliness it lives in the shadows most of the time you know when it's on the bed like the bed itself just oh, becomes yeah. like this sort of pool of disgustingness um you have people you know you have anna having sex with the creature which is mm -hmm. a bit you know unusual um but i even think like in certain <laughs> degrees like you if you kind of watch both anna and mark in the movie too there's there's a lot of times in this movie where they're both kind of dirty um yeah. you know you have mark sort of dis like initial descent when he goes and has like this little bender in a hotel for a while and he's just like like you almost can smell him through the screen because you just know he hasn't showered the entire time he's been there. His clothes are dirty and he just looks filthy. Like I want to say like at least 70% of the, the scenes with Anna in it, she's wearing the same dress and you know, yes. she's not washing that dress. And there's even times where she doesn't even button the back of the dress up. Like yeah. it's just open. And so I thought, you know, because of sort of, how this movie sort of strips away 
any sort of niceties. Like their apartment is nice, but there's times where it just becomes like an absolute like pigsty. Like mm-hmm. there's a moment I think at one point when Mark comes home and little Bob is just covered in goop. Oh, yeah. Which again, I'm just like, oh, kids are gross. <laughs> Um, I love other people's kids, but they're gross. And so there's just all these sort of different levels to sort of the goopy, grossy, gross, uh, like the, the goopy, gross griminess mm-hmm. of what you want out of something like this. Or you didn't even know that you wanted out of something like this that sort of becomes, you know, it's, you know, Andre is sort of be able, able to kind of push it to the forefront. Um, so I was just, I was like thinking about it. I was like, gosh. Like, what is a good disgust movie? And I was like, well, I was like, honestly, like, I think Possession is it for me. Also, because nobody wants to watch, like, the Garbage Pail Kids movie. So. (laughs) I would sit through it for you. No, you do not want to. I would never, I would never inflict that on anybody. do that to me? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm right there with you with, with all these different readings that you've brought to the forefront here. You know, we do have the disgusting elements, especially it shows neglect a lot in the film. It shows the horror of it all kind of comes through the more disgusting scenes. And I I don't necessarily mean how classically or traditionally we like to think of horror films like, Oh, it's a bloodless movie. It's not a good horror movie. And this one's not a bloodless movie, but I honestly don't feel that disgusting moments in horror films are always used in a way that I feel heightens the horror. Sometimes it's just there to gross you out. Yeah. Ask Bruce Campbell. (laughs) There you go. Oh yeah. The king of it all, of course. And in this case, I felt that it did. I think the cosmic horror becomes darker and darker and darker. The gloopier the film gets because you don't really, at least for a first time viewer, you do not expect it to take this turn. I had heard like, squid fucking from so many people. I was like, what movie are you talking about? The movie where this woman's possessed and she kind of like dances around in the, the subway? I was like, it's called Possession. What are you talking about? And then now seeing it, I'm like, oh, yes, okay. But also, the way it's done is such a... I did not expect a kind of like Carpenter's The Thing style, gloop, nasty, tentacle kind of film. And it also resonates differently than those films. It's still a, an SFX featured creature feature kind of take without any of this focus on the effects in my opinion they're just there to serve this more kind of hazy metaphorical emotional ride and that's such a unique way to do that i guess i'm not used to films really going in and being like oh we're gonna have some like good practical effects for added effect to this thing that's already kind of fucking you up emotionally. So uh, it's so many films in one because of it. And I love that. I I got a question for you, though. Yeah. Do you think this film would have worked if it wasn't as disgusting? No, I think, honestly, like, everything about this movie feels like the most extreme version of every situation. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. almost every conversation just feels like, like the worst version of that conversation possible, like her sleeping around feels like now that, you know, it's, it's so much more than just poor Heinrich. It's like the most extreme version of cheating on your husband ever. Right. You know, and you know, neglecting Bob, it's like, it's an extreme version of like neglecting your child because you've left him now there for like, I want to say days if I'm remembering correctly, 
where he's just like eating out of like a jar and and he's mm-hmm. got toys everywhere. Everything about this movie is just these this constant uh set of extremes. Um so I feel like had it had it been more understated in that regard, like I don't think I, I you know, I, I think it needed to push things the way that it does for it to be a film that we're still talking about, you know, over 40 years later. I agree. I think that that is why it still stood the test of time and it's on everybody's lips is that we don't get movies that are, okay, I'm going to be careful here. We get movies that are very extreme. Yeah. On all of the levels that this movie is extreme. But I don't think we get a lot of movies anymore that are just pushing it in every regard at the same time and just creating like this screaming white noise in your head that isn't so unpleasant that you can't watch it. It's too fascinating to not watch it yet. Also, there's enough humor in it. I think too, that really, you know, I mean, Heinrich, (laughs) he kind of brings you back down to earth just a little bit somehow, but I know for him being like such a weird sort of like hippie kind of guy, like he's sort of the most grounded in like, relatable character in this because he's like you're like oh yeah okay Heinrich gets it Uh, but Mm -hmm. he's so fascinatingly offbeat as well Um, but ultimately his fate is sort of is very grotesque as well because Mm -hmm. he gets stabbed and then you know basically has that scene with uh, Mark in the bathroom like that's not a place like I mean you know we're all gonna go some point you know I think most of us hope that it's not going to be in a public bathroom under such circumstances as poor Heinrich. Oh yeah. I mean, it's not even as bad as it, it would be bad enough. It was like your own, like if the situation that Mark sets up were real, that's already bad enough. If you're like vomiting and you slip, hit your head and you die. Yeah. No, no, no. You get drowned after getting cracked in the skull in somebody else's vomit. (laughs) Yeah. And then just, are locked in there. So if you're still alive, nobody's going to know. So that was pretty horrifying. Uh, and one of the few scenes I will say that made me kind of go, Ugh. you know, there, there was a real <laughs> disgust response to this moment when he's put the shoe in the toilet and then put the feather. I was like, Oh, don't do it, dude. Ugh. Ugh. I was like, Oh, it's happening. <laughs> yep. Yep. Isn't it odd that that's the thing that gets me more than the weird flappy bloody vagina monster and like this alien miscarriage halfway through the film of her just like oozing milk and yogurt out of her ears. And no, it's the guy vomiting in a toilet and just putting somebody else's face in it. That's when I was like, no, this is too much for me. <laughs> you feel like a line has been crossed. And it yeah, has. it's actually, you know, when you, when you talked about grotesque, like, you know, that subway scene, really fits the bill because you know you also sort of get those that the those sort of pumps of blood as well you know because it's essentially you know it's it's a miscarriage yeah in a lot of ways it's sort of this metaphorical miscarriage uh that's happening in this really sort of unbelievable way and you know again it's one of those when i think of like super grotesque moments it's like Seeing Isabelle uh, Ajane like s- sitting there and just watching all of this stuff ooze yeah. all over her and from her and things like that. Like, I know me and I know my, like, oh, I have a little bit of jelly on my finger. I got to wash my hands twice or something, <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, oh, what this woman went through in yes. making this movie is just, it, it's, oh, yes. it's crazy. One thing I noted from the scene, too, is normally I would be a little critical of a film that 
had the editing in a way that you could kind of tell they had to do multiple takes and uh, that, you know, the continuity wasn't quite there with the scene. And I loved that, though. I loved how it made it more dreamlike and you couldn't kind of tell where we were in the process. And it didn't matter. It didn't it did not need to be sequential. But one thing I did notice is the the real big, famous, like long take they have of her freaking out. And right. So the moment after she's already smashed the, I think it's a milk bottle against the wall. Yeah. She's gotten a little bit of moisture on her, but then they do one cut. So you could tell, I think that they were going for a single cut, but I was, I've been in a few uh, like low budget films and some plays and stuff doing similar stuff. I was going to turn to my partner. I was like, I've done maybe 20% of what this woman's doing. And I can tell you, I don't blame them for needing to do multiple takes because, yeah. oh, crap, what she has to go through. But then they cut, and she's soaked. Her hair's wet. Her dress is completely soaked. And you look at the ground, and there's all this muck and everything. And that's when she goes on for like a good three or four minutes. And then it cuts one more time to where she falls on the ground and starts rolling at it. And if you look closely, she's dry there. And that's where she gets wet is from rolling around and all the stuff that she she knocked over. And that's when she also starts oozing. So it's like post-ooze. They filmed more of it from the looks of it and got you that real visceral performance that they got out of her. And hats off to them for doing it. I, I you know, I think a lot of films, well, not scholars, but a lot of film critics can be really nitpicky about stuff like that. And I thought of it, but I was fascinated by it because I actually like to see like, just, I guess because I come from an actor's perspective as well. Like, what did you go through? How did you do this? What was it like to do these things? And I can only imagine how tense it is to do this in a public area like this. I'm sure they had it closed off, but still just the thought of it being outside where people can hear you and just do it again, do it again, do it again in the cold, covered in all this nasty stuff. Um, I've never done anything quite that gross. I'll tell you that much. I've done some stuff that's hurt me really bad, but never done anything where I was just like soaked with who knows what for over half of a film. Not, and I mean, in the tentacle monster, you know, coitus as well. Uh, that scene had to be an ordeal to kind of deal with. I can't even imagine. Uh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah, and it's interesting too, and I say this, you know, as lovingly as possible, but like to be really honest, like I know Carlo Rambaldi is sort of this name, recognizable name when it comes to effects, because you know there wasn't a ton of Italian guys doing it at the time that he was doing it, but like his work isn't great. <laughs> um, he tries, like you know, and I think part of I think it actually works. Uh, to the advantage of the story here that a lot of the time the tentacle monster is is hidden by shadows and darkness because yeah. when you really look at it up close, it's, you know, in comparison to something like The Thing, you're like, oh boy, like this is, this is so leaps and bounds below the work that was happening here, you know, and and I say this as somebody who like, I love Silver Bullet, but I don't necessarily totally love his big cuddly bear werewolf, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, and there's times where I know he was on certain movies that he got pulled off of because he wasn't delivering the effects that he needed. And also from right. stories that I've heard too, he was kind of a jerk, uh, mm. to a lot of people. and wasn't one of those that liked to help uh, a lot of up and coming artists sure. at the time. And I, you know, there's a ton of Italian masters who, who've done incredible work over there. But that being said, like, I think because he could be sort of abstract with this monster and kind of, 
again, sort of use the darkness to kind of hide maybe where it doesn't work as well as it should have. Like, I think that ultimately ends up making the monster even better than it probably really was. And I think, again, that sort of then lends lends itself really well to the atmosphere of this story uh, as well. Uh, mm-hmm. In ways that maybe, you know, setting out to, when they set out to do this, you know, that's ultimately because of what, how, you know, they didn't have a ton of time. They had to rush through a lot of things. I'm guessing the effects are part of that, that maybe that ended up sort of being a bonus uh, for Andre, you know, mm-hmm. and the work that they were doing rather than sort of hindering it. Because, you know, there's a lot of times when movies are happening and like the effects aren't working the way that they're supposed to. And that's like a real hindrance. Where I think in some ways, like, they kind of just, it ended up sort of being a benefit uh, to them here in a lot of ways. So, but, I, you know, I, it's it's one of those where I'm like, you know, I, I don't know that you want to see that monster in full view and you want to see it perfectly lit. Because, again, I think it adds to sort of the the mystery of just what exactly this creature is and what it's, why is it here? Why is it sleeping with her specifically? Like. You know, I've always been wondering, like, how how did she find this monster? Did it yeah. call to her? Like, how does that happen? And, you know, at some point, obviously something had happened, because if you look at Bob's teacher, like, how, how does, you know, that version of Anna uh, in Helen exist? Like, is that something yeah. that came out of, like, the relationship at the beginning? Like, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to me um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, there are a lot of clues to that that don't... I mean, I've only seen it once, but I think that they're trying to give you the feeling that there are some clues there, you know, with those recordings from when, like, a year plus ago, where she's already talking about, like, duality and the two sisters and Chance, and I think the other one was Lie? Faith. 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 Thank you. Chance and Faith. And, you know, she and Anna ends up being the faithful one. And you have the you have Helen, who's more of a chance encounter for Mark. So, you know, there's a lot of foreshadowing throughout the film as well. So it makes me wonder if there is this sort of process to it that Mark was just not aware of, had been going on for a long time. Helen also mentions that she used to see Anna there every single day. Yeah. So who knows what, what Helen uh, was was doing with Anna. And um, on the note you're saying with the effects, too, is like, I do agree with you for sure. There are moments that like uh, it was a little cute when they got some close up on the, sh- the shots on the face. It was like, oh, pretty little eyes. But um, the mystery around it and being in the shadows and being so damn gloopy just made me just get this ugh, just terror response to the thing when I can't help but feel like Clive Barker saw this film. <laughs> yeah, was- right. You know, the Hellbound Heart was a few years after this. And it just feels to me like when he went out to make Hellraiser, he was just like, I want to do that, but then show it the whole way and let you understand it. And you just can't escape it. Which to me, I mean, I like Frank and all. He's gross. (laughs) Yeah. But there's the fact that it's a very human motivation behind Frank makes him personally less scary he's just gross the cenobites are the scary ones to me in the in that film and the people the ones like julia of course 
But in this one, it was just this fact that we don't know anything about its motivations. We don't know anything about how it comes to be, what it is throughout the whole film. It kind of reminded me of some of the better parts of the thing in that respect. Like you have moments where they uh, walk into, I forget where this was in the film, but like, you know, they walk into one of the rooms and you see the thing like in mid transformation of like this sack just kind of like sliding over some like part of it and its face and you can't really make out what's going on it's just ugh. yeah <laughs> is all you see and i liked that they used that effect uh to a, a very strong response for me at the very least but it did indeed feel like ah good you had very competent filmmakers who worked around other limitations and it's just like lighting pace camera work sound Everything together, you're going to have good effect moments. And then they didn't really have to put it into the open too much. In fact, as you know, as much as you're going like, what the fuck, when you get the whole scene where she's actually having sex with the entity, she has mentioned it so many times. And if we just left it to hearing it and seeing Sam Neill's face, I think I would have been more disturbed than seeing what I saw. It just more made me feel bad for the actress for have to, having to do it, basically. And knowing that, like, all the puppeteers are there and they're moving the yeah. tentacles and, and all oh, that God, stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The tail and everything. It's like, yeah, I see where you're going with it, but, like, just some close-ups on her face and maybe a little gloop kind of, like, going down her neck or something would have been enough for me to be like, oh, I don't want to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... And the movie plays on that so well, the whole, I want to know, but I'm good. You don't have to tell me, you know? <laughs> and I was a little surprised that it went there and they're like, I want to have my big reveal moment. But it's 81, you know, we hadn't even gotten into that phase where people were really doing it. So it's kind of a pioneer in that way of really, let's go for it and show you this shit. And uh, I admire it on that level. Um, yeah, especially because yeah, yeah. it was outside of the, you know, outside of the U.S., yeah, you know, well. yeah. film circle, you know what I mean? Like, so the, and this was being made outside of like the studio system as well. So mm -hmm. the fact that they would choose to go as far as they did was, was pretty revolutionary at the time, I think. And then it's unfortunate too, considering it's such a low budget film outside of the Hollywood industry at the time. I, I think that's why it's one of those films that you have to be a horror fan to really hear about it. Yeah. And then even then, like, like with myself, it's one of those, you're like, I'll get to it. Unless, you know, there's a reason maybe you happen to be in a situation where it's playing or something. But it's not one of those movies that people like pilgrimage to seek out. It's not an exorcist where you're like, test yourself with this movie. But it should be. I think it's right there with all the others. It has a very mainstream quality to it. It just doesn't have a mainstream structure of any kind, which is what makes it unique, in my opinion. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, it's one of these movies that like I never really heard about like as a kid growing up. I, I don't re really remember it even being in our video store, you uh -uh. know, as a kid. Because I feel like at some point I would have seen a horror movie starring Sam Neill and been like, yes, I need to watch this. Yeah. So, again, it's, 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 it's interesting to me because I don't really know exactly, like, how it was received. Like, I know it played Cannes. I know it did well there. Okay. But beyond that, like, I don't really know how this movie was perceived in the time it was released. I mean, other than I'm sure traditional uh, reviewers, you know, at that point in history probably crapped all over it because that's what they did with pretty much every horror movie. <laughs> so looking in your direction, Roger Ebert. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Not enough people like to uh, comment on the Ebert of it all. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, again, being from Chicago originally, like, 
you know, and Siskel and Eber being such a huge part of, you know, our culture there, especially, you know, in, in mm-hmm. the 80s and 90s and things like that. You know, I respect him, but at the same time, I wish he would have put a little more effort into understanding horror because I feel I like agree. he just was outwardly dismissive in ways he didn't have to be. Mm-hmm. So kind of a bummer because I feel like, you know, you miss out on a lot of good things like that. You know, when you sort of come to any media uh, with sort of these, you know, these, these, you know, already existing bias, biases or biases yeah. or bias. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to figure oh. that word out at some point before we're done. <laughs> bias. I, I don't know. <laughs> bias, I like that one. Yeah. But Hey, you know, that's what you're here for, right? You're, you're, you're making sure that that hole is now plugged in, filled. You're like, I, I got you. Yeah. I'm here to like give you just, this is what I see and you should enjoy it. So, yeah, I feel like, you know, yeah, I feel like ultimately, like, it kind of makes me wish that he was still around just because I feel like there's probably like a lot of movies that I think, you know, over time, you kind of think he might reevaluate a little bit Mm -hmm. and what a benefit those movies could enjoy from something like that. Um, You know, because even if, you know, and I'm the same way, like if there's a movie that I don't totally love when I see it, like I will at least try to give it one more shot at some point. Because, you know, sometimes you're in a bad mood. Sometimes you're just, you know, you're not in the right mindset for whatever you're watching. And, you know, that kind of stuff can influence you. And then there's just some movies you watch that you're not the audience for. You don't connect with it. And that's okay, too. But I'm I'm one of these people, like, even when I don't love something, I will try to give it another shot. Just to make sure, like, that that was really how I felt about it. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, if there was something else sort of playing into it. That's fair. Yeah, I have a hard time doing it myself, but maybe that's time. Uh, sometimes I'll return to them and be like, "Am I, am I just like telling myself that that's how it is? Am I really so detached from everybody else?" And then I'll watch it again and go, "Waste of my time. Damn it! <laughs> if, you, if you don't like it, you don't like it. Then there's no. That's fine. You know, leave it to the people who do enjoy it. I suppose." Um, I have a hard time thinking that I don't know anybody who dislikes this movie unless they're just very quiet about that. But I can see why. It's a very heavy, triggering sort of film. It's very vague and kind of – it's in the ether, right? Yeah. It's very malleable and it's it's so based on the aesthetics that it's giving you that if you're not really there for that ride to just sit back and be like, what does this movie have to offer – you're going to get lost and you might just get irritated along the way. It can drag just a little bit, but I still found myself invested in it the whole way through because even those sequences that I would say like quote unquote drag, they were just fascinating on, I could tell that something else was going on like multiple viewings. I'm going to see more like little puzzle pieces throughout the entire film. And then you're just kind of waiting for the next shock. basically. Yeah. In this movie. <laughs> Um, You're like what? I'm possibly or what? Uh, what on this earth could possibly be next? Exactly, exactly. Is there a sequence in the film in particular that just kind of strikes you every single time? That kind of gets under your skin. You know, I think one of the scenes that really hits hit me hard, like on a personal level, was uh, early on when they're in the diner in the the restaurant and they're talking oh, and they're yeah. talking away from each other. They're not even looking at each other, and that's how they're communicating, which I think is, you know. That's the that's that is you know Andre basically setting the stage for how these people are so 
disconnected from each other at this point. Like that they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're having a conversation where they're not even looking at each other. There's, there's, they're so separate at that moment. Um, and then it just, you know, Mark has that just total like mental breakdown, physical breakdown. He's, you know, mm-hmm. turns it into this huge scene. So I think for me, that's, pr- uh, something very interesting. I also think, honestly, everything with Heinrich to me is so fascinating because like, it's a character yeah. that I, I, like, I remember ultimately hating the first time I saw it, but like now the more that I watch it, I'm just really fascinated by him. And the sort of, I always get really sad, like when Mark goes and visits his mother and you know, his, at that point, you know, his mother, his mother knows that Heinrich is dead. Like she hasn't been told, but she knows because that's her instinct. And it's sort of a, this sad little quiet moment in a movie that doesn't have a lot of sad little quiet moments, um, which I find so, so interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's one of those, like you could almost take like, at least two thirds of this movie and like break down these different sequences. And you could just, you could study them individually mm-hmm. for any like film class and come away with probably like 10 different interpretations. Like once you're done for sure. because of just the way that the story, the storytelling is like so layered and things like that. It's, it's very interesting, but yeah, I, you know, and honestly, like, I think there's, it's one of those, like, I remember, you know, the first time seeing it really uh, kind of feeling so tapped into what Isabel was dealing with. And now I think when I watch it, I'm always trying to watch it from Sam Neill's character of Mark, his perspective, mm-hmm. because it's like, I'm tr- I'm trying to understand, like, if you're in this situation, like, how do you cope with these things? You know, and especially in the case of the fact that they have a kid in the middle of all of this. and you know, it's it's one of those like we we always talk about Sam Neill in terms of like all the genre stuff that he's done um, over the years because he's done great stuff. Um, you know, between whether it's you know something you know is fun and adventure driven as like you know Jurassic Park or huh. In the Mouth of Madness or something like Event Horizon. I think for me now, like I want I, I want Possession to be that movie that when people talk about his genre work that I want if I had one wish that I could get granted, it's that this movie would become the movie for people. Um, because mm-hmm. I think, you know, honestly, like I've never seen a performance like this out of him. And I think I remember even watching a video of him talking at like some regular Q and a or something like that for some film festival. And he was talking about like, you know, this was within the last 10 years or so where he's talking about his work on this movie. And he was just like, you know, it's one of these movies. It was the, the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And I, you know, I'm glad I did it at the age I did it because there's no way that I could handle a movie like this now. And that's the thing. Like, I don't think they make movies like this these days. I think the closest mm-hmm. we were, you know, we probably got last year was something like Titan um, from, uh, okay. you know, I think in terms of sort of bold pushing the extremes you know, and things like that. And sort of these characters who you don't know if you like them necessarily, but you're fascinated by them and you're kind of watching their process as they sort of deal with their own humanity in a way. But, you know, I'm, I'm, when there's movies like that, that pop up, those are the movies that like, you know, stick with me. There is something fascinating about an exploration of the humanity of terrible people. It, 
shines a light a bit on our own ugliness and the parts of us that we find disgusting, right? Yeah. There's so much about, uh, and I, and this is, I'm not even talking about like the physical. I'm sure you know just about everybody can look in the mirror and just be like, nah, I want to fix this, I want to fix that. Why am I not this? Why am I not that? But just emotionally, I think people run away from it very, very strongly when it is so important to get to know that side of you and to see that in other people to also understand it a little better so that you can distill what is what and then you can make better judgments and and decisions for yourself of who you associate with. But it does build empathy there and you have to start with yourself this is a movie I feel that kind of forces you to do that. Yeah. One of the most disgusting elements of it for me, and this is a different kind of disgust than you would normally be just you know, talking about. It's not the visual gloopy, horrible, I don't want to touch it kind of disgust. It's you've already mentioned it. The fact that there's a kid involved throughout the whole film and it does such a good job of getting you sucked into their, what seems like little drama that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And every time they come back to Bob, I'm like, fuck. They just even mention Bob. I'm like, oh, God damn it, there's a kid. Yeah. Oh my God, how's this kid going to be after seeing all of this shit, being around all of this shit? How is this kid kind? How is this kid okay? Even his father, who seems on the surface to be the one dealing with it all, you know, is completely stuck in his own desires and needs very selfish very self-centered they use the child constantly against each other as well as he tries to use bob as leverage to stay in the relationship if you really cared about our child you would care about thinking about me and what i want and what i need I'm like how did how did you get here you know? yeah <laughs> and that shows your level of sheer neglect for this poor little kid who's just trying to be alive and have parents hell the moment I think it was later in the film. You finally have Anna come back home after some time, and they're gonna have a big fight. And you can and Bob just says, "Can I go outside?" And they're like, "Yeah, you want to go in the garden? Go in the garden," because he knew they're about to fight. That broke my heart because yeah. I've been in those situations. Unfortunately, my parents were divorced when I was young, so it wasn't my parents. But I've definitely seen my mom with like other people that we lived with or, you know, other like authority figures in our household where it's just a clear like, oh, I'll ask later. And then you leave and you just kind of like hope that you don't have to hear it, you know? Yeah. Because you know it's about to kick off. And it's just like it's scarring. It's terrible stuff that to this day I don't even think about and I try not to because I don't know what I'm going to feel you know i don't really want to dredge that up again and I, I just felt for bob the whole way through to the extent you see what happens at the end of the film too like poor kid yeah like he ultimately kills himself yes you know which is like so heavy-handed for this poor little child who's like he's just like don't open the door like he knows he knows what's waiting on the other side of that door and he wants nothing to do with it and he goes upstairs and essentially like drowns himself in the tub in the way that they just linger on that shot is so horrifying but it's so it's so horrifying in its simplicity because everything Mm -hmm. about the movie up until that is like so over the top and at certain degrees and so emotionally driven where this kid just like at this point he has no choice but to go upstairs and like put himself underwater 
And it's so interesting when you look at the opening of this movie and you see these little things that get sort of established in there in terms of the electric knife, Bob in the bathtub, and how all of that, you know, comes full circle throughout the movie. Um, again, it's just, it's so astonishing, like how these things, how this movie works, you know, with the layered uh, storytelling that the way that it does, because it's, again, it's like eighties, we weren't really seeing a lot of movies that were doing that. And I say that lovingly, but like, you know, when I think of eighties movies, like, you know, you kind of think of the bigger sort of more fun stuff or the sequels mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, at a time when like movies like the nightmare movies or the, the Friday 13th movies, or even the Halloween sequels, like subtlety, you know, sort of like narrative thematic elements, you know, uh, working on multiple levels like that wasn't necessarily always a thing so that's <laughs> i think that's why this movie feels so remarkable but i also love sort of horror in like 1980 and 1981 because it still sort of had the sort of the after it's sort of like this lingeringness of the 70s cinema movements that we were seeing yeah. um so like if you told me this movie was made in 75 i would believe you same yeah yeah like i know it's a movie that was made in 19 that was released in 1981 but it doesn't feel specifically tied to that decade the way that a lot of other movies from the 80s do no no and i mean even look at the shining that i think was such a perfect in-between film because it does have this grandiosity that we come to expect the mainstreamness of it all uh, that you come to expect from the 80s, but it also had that more kind of thought-provoking, emotional core to it that we've also gotten used to from the 70s. The 70s were tackling a lot of really heavy shit, and some of it just really small, emotional stuff just from a personal level, but then make it really huge. Like a movie like Carrie, for instance, is just like, well, this is just basically about coming of age and bullying. And uh, this is what you get. It's a big kind of gut punch of a film through it. Or, you know, your more artiste, auteur kind of films were being explored a lot more in the 70s. People kind of kind of coming back to cinema after, since the silent era, we had a whole boom of more like plays that had been filmed. And in this case, people were like, but what can you do with the camera and the sound and exploring all of that because of the freedom of the 70s. And you're right, if... Somebody were to tell me that this had been in the 70s. In fact, every bit of footage I saw from it beforehand, I thought it was a movie from the 70s. It's got that <laughs> kind of hue and everything to it as well. But 81, it's not so far away from the 70s. And the creature feature part of it. When we get into the effects, that's where all of these moments, I was like, oh, yeah, it's an 80s movie. Like, <laughs> now I kind of see it. Uh, definitely some uh, wonderful different silicone and paper mache and things in this movie. So uh, too many heads in the refrigerator to not be from the eighties, basically. Right. And you know, it's, it's, it says something about her dedication to keep all of these like body parts in the fridge. Although I do love the one sequence, when she comes back to the apartment and she starts like randomly shoving clothing into her, her fridge. Cause she's just kind of melting yeah. down. Yeah. Um, where it's like she's doing everything wrong at that point. Where it's she's like she doesn't even know how to sort of function as like her role as a mother and as a caretaker. Where mm-hmm. it's like, I'm gonna grab or a bunch human. of clothes. Yeah. And it's like I will throw them in the refrigerator. Where obviously she knows her refrigerator does because she's keeping body parts in the other apartment. So it's it's a very interesting True. juxtaposition. It also shows how 
the extremes that we've seen throughout the entire film, she's already a little distant and detached. So to a degree that you're like, is this just acting? Like, is this like supposed to be just very heightened emotions, metaphorical, or is something going on? And if it's just her cheating on somebody, like I can't imagine anybody acting this way. What the fuck is? But then you find like if you're dealing with an existential crisis because you have found essentially god <laughs> to your feeling uh, at least that's the only way you can rationalize it it's got to be god right that's the only way that uh something like this could exist and yeah. make me feel the way i feel and tell me the things it's telling me without saying a word she has that going on plus feeling that she's being unfaithful because she's having sexual relations with it plus the emotional stress that it's causing her partner who seems to also have a lot of mental health issues that have not been addressed the pressure is just going to snap you after some time. And I guess I don't blame her for wanting to put all of the laundry in the uh, cabins and take all of the food and put it in the washing machine <laughs> after some. I love that Sam Neill there, too, is Marcus is kind of like, I'm just going to let her do this. Yeah. It, this is one of the few moments where he felt grounded, where he was like, look, I've been upset for the entirety of the situation. But I'm like, I think she needs this right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was a very impressive scene uh, on his part. And as you were saying, like the subtlety of it all as well. Uh, To use the example again, just one year away, we had The Shining, but I would still say less subtle, right? As much as it's a very amalgamous film and it's taken people a long time to really pinpoint some of it, I think some of it's also just there on the surface. It's really just meant to make you go like, ah, it's scary. Ah, all these, these deep, horrible things and the overlook is a terrifying place. It's meant to be questionable whereas possession is like there's a truth somewhere in there and you want to look for i already said you want to look for it but you kind of don't want to yeah (laughs) that's a subtlety you don't see a lot in the 80s i do want to briefly come back to that quote before we wrap up so i have a tendency to forget them because i have such lovely conversations with people but uh, i think for my listeners they may want me to actually stick to my structure just a little uh (laughs) and so the, the quote you know they're talking about the deformed destructive being and this comes from a book by that title it's called deformed and destructive beings the purpose of horror films it's by george and i do apologize if i mispronounced the last name here i think it's a koa or a choa but i'm gonna say a koa i think the ch is a hard sound and essentially his book is about his perspective on the question of why horror basically the paradox of if it's so horrible, why would you even sit down and try to enjoy it? What is the purpose of us even doing this? Yeah. A lot of debate and philosophy on this, a lot of debate and horror in general. And one of the most famous books in philosophy and in scholarly work on this is the philosophy of horror from Noel Carroll in which Noel Carroll kind of takes a perspective where he sees horror as quote unquote, art horror he makes a very clear distinction of these are films this is art this is not the real emotion of horror because that's something you don't want to deal with yeah but in his view essentially it's not so much about the content or who's in it or whatever it's far more about your feelings and what it does to you and the narrative how that kind of drags you along and what you get out of it yeah well okoa does not agree with this he feels that the crux of a really good horror film is, or just to be a horror film in general, is that they all have what he calls a DDB, a deformed, destructive being. Now, of course, he does unpack what he means by deformed and destructive and, you know, and, and at length 
chapters. <laughs> uh, so I'll be very brief on that. But, you know, deformity in this sense is, you know, you have to imply a a normal for this to work. So you have your cast of characters who are human beings. And there should always be something that is other, something that is anterior to everybody. So either it's a force that you can't quite pinpoint, you don't see it. That's still a, a deformity in his eyes on a conceptual level or on even like a lawful level if you have people who do horrible things. And being destructive, of course, it has to be very violent. You know, what really catches me with that quote is the fact that he's talking about the intimacy of knowledge and the relationship between the knower and the known, because obviously they have to come closer to each other you know, on a conceptual basis. And I feel that Possession explores this really strongly in multiple ways through the different characters, of course. You know, the more Mark gets to know about Heinrich, the closer they become in certain ways. They even have like this weird kind of like buddy cop kind of attitude there around the end of the film. Yeah. Mark ends up killing him. And then you also, of course, have Anna and Mark. And then you have the thing itself. I don't even know what to call it. The entity. And that's where the horror of it all comes for me. It's like the more you understand it, the worse it gets i would say because you kind of don't want to get near it it's just so disgusting and horrible and on a conceptual level just so devastating that it was better when you didn't know and i think that's kind of how mark feels about the relationship with anna too that the more he knew the worse it kind of became for him but the more he was willing to help even though it was at the detriment of his entire sanity basically um so yeah, that's why I brought that quote in. I don't know. Uh, I just I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I just kind of like to bring these in to to kind of tie it to my studies a little bit and just see if the guests have anything to say. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a perfect quote for this film, um, especially because if we talk about sort of these the duality of of our humanity, whether it's mm-hmm. stuff that we're conscientious of or stuff that you know sort of just lurks within us, you know every day that we, you know, we haven't reconciled yet with. So I think there's something interesting about, because I think it's, it's, you know, when we start off this movie, it's like Sam Neill is kind of coming at everything from like one perspective and throughout it, you see how all of these experiences like sort of, you know, change him and transform him in a lot of ways. In fact, I think it's really interesting that there's that moment where like, you know, he starts off where he is just, he hates Heinrich. He, he's angry at Heinrich. And as you mentioned, like they sort of, their, their relationship evolves and there's like that really telling moment when they're standing and talking to each other. And he's like, you know, he's like, I, I used to, you know, I used to be afraid of you, you know, and, and now I just feel like bad for you or something to that regard. And I think it's just, you know, it's something interesting about like how, like our own perceptions of things almost have like these multiple layers to them as well. Um, but yeah, I think the quote that you've chose for this was absolutely perfect considering all of the sort of thematic elements that are, you know, going on, you know, throughout possession. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about the concept in general? Would you say that that's also kind of a prerequisite for horror films or would you say there's more nuance to it than just this? Because obviously this book is meant to give a new perspective, but it is written in a way that's to be like, this is the thing. Uh, so I'm very curious to your thoughts on if a f- horror film really requires some sort of monster that is from the eyes of the viewer considered just depraved, deformed, destructive, that it's just this, this force of violence that 
repels us in some way. Do you think that's a, a prerequisite for a horror film? You know, I think, it, it, you know, as a horror fan, it's always something that's appreciated and I enjoy. But I think sometimes you can sort of do these these types of stories and you don't necessarily need the monster. I think, especially these days, because right. we've seen so much metaphorical horror uh, come through the, you know, sort of come through over the last like five to seven years, which is interesting because I remember having a conversation with Patrick Brownlee years ago and it just felt like, I, I really felt like horror was going more introspective mm-hmm. and, you know, where it's like a lot of these times, like even like, I remember, I think it's like the beach house or something like that, where it's like there's monsters, but ultimately the, the, the things that are really sort of terrifying and about are sort of the things that are happening between this couple stuck in this really, again, cosmic monster type of scenario, you know, where it's like monsters are great and there's, you know, and we love them. And it's part of the reason a lot of us fell in love with horror movies, you know, when we're younger. Um, But I think as you get older, like you still appreciate them, but they don't, you don't necessarily need them, Mm. you know, where I think you can, you can get away with creating something that's ultimately compelling um, and that sort of taps into these real life horrors, um, and sort of thought provoking horrors, um, in a way that you don't always need sort of a physical manifestation of that, but I'll never turn, I'll never, I'll never turn my nose up at a monster either. So <laughs> <laughs> I do love me a good monster. Yes. And, uh, just in case, uh, George ever <laughs> happens to listen to this episode, I just want to make clear to him, like, and so everybody knows as well, he does navigate it in a way where he tries to apply it to humanity as well. So we can look at people who have just the way they appear makes them other, the way they work within society. You take a Leatherface, for instance, you know, it's somebody who is depraved due to societal circumstances, but still wears like somebody's face on his face and tries to attack you with a chainsaw. Yeah. So he does put it in that perspective too, like even a Patrick Bateman would qualify in this category. But th- I do feel that's where the theory has to be stretched just a little bit. And because then you have deformity and depravity and stuff in the realm of like your mental state, basically, and, and your lawfulness and what you want to do to people. But still, yeah, I thought it was a very interesting perspective to take, but there are enough horror films that indeed just kind of go back to like, the person that is the protagonist is having a problem and you discover that most of it's been imagined or even if it's not even framed that way, sometimes it's just somebody tense for like an hour (laughs) and a half and you don't know why. So it's an implied horror. And then we get to the crux of the fact that it's usually some sort of like emotional state that the person was in or a memory that's been bothering them for so long so on and so forth. So you're right. The, the more introspective it gets, the more this theory struggles, I feel, just a little bit. But it's got an interesting perspective. And I do think it applies especially to movies from, like, pre-2000s, I would say. That was the general way horror was told. And, you know, we most of them still had that kind of campfire tale quality to them of you could read out the synopsis of a horror movie around a campfire and freak everybody out. Yeah. So... Yeah, uh, it's all about the boogeyman and things that go bump in the night. But uh, was there anything else maybe from your notes or from if from the film in particular that we haven't discussed yet that maybe you wanted to dive into? Or do you think that we've covered uh, 
enough, I suppose, <laughs> for the time being. I mean, do you have another four hours? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can think... give you another like 14 minutes, maybe. No, and I, th- I think what's great about this, too, though, is like, ultimately, we've talked about so much, so many different elements of this movie, but ultimately, like, somebody's going to watch this movie and they're going to come away with completely different perspectives than even we have yeah. on it. Um, where it's like, you know, if you wa- if if we're all watching Poltergeist, chances are we're all going to have pretty similar reactions to things. There might be little mm-hmm. elements that stick out to certain people that don't stick out to others, but like, there's usually like a pretty tried and true response to like certain mainstream movies. Where like Possession, you could have ten different people watch that movie and have ten different takeaways from this, mm-hmm. which I think is the beauty of of this story. Um, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating. And like, honestly, like you could watch this movie a few more times in the next year. We could come back in one year and talk about this movie. And we may have a completely different conversation. Oh yeah. You know, which I think is great about it. So again, I'm hoping at this point, if people are still listening, that they have seen this movie. Uh, but for, for some reason, if you're like, Oh, I don't care about spoilers. I'm going to listen anyway. I really do hope, you know, people take the time to either, watch it or revisit it because i think again it's one of these movies that the more time you spend with it i think it becomes something different Mm -hmm. and i think every time i've watched it i've almost had like a different reaction to it uh and there's very few films that i've had that sort of experience with so but yeah i think in general i think in terms of what we set out to accomplish i think we've done a pretty good job of that here you know i i agree (laughs) <laughs> and uh yeah i can see that this is going to be one of those movies that i'm just going to revisit for like you know when i'm sick or like a rainy day or i'm just having a bit of like a inspiration for something and oh i'm going to put on possession to see if i can read it from this lens or from that lens i think it's such a rich film to just test where you are in life watching the film yeah and just you're also just see how your accumulation of knowledge and life experience shapes your viewing of the film because i do feel that it is a film based on life experiences not in a one-in-one kind of way but just in like what it does to you and how you change as a person so i think that that's going to be a timeless film for years and years and years and years to come and yeah i'm really happy that you could especially happy and honored that heather wixon was the one who put me on the journey (laughs) to do my pilgrimage to possession from now on so thank you very much for that well i'm excited that i was the one who got to uh turn you on to it so because it's it always makes me happy when i get to introduce people to films and especially films that they ultimately love so that makes me very very Mm -hmm. happy you're still doing it you know you started at like the ripe old age of uh like eight years old and 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 here we are (laughs) you're still trailblazing and getting people on board so uh, well done heather you're 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 true to your brand (laughs) it'll be my legacy if nothing else (laughs) exactly well then i think we can wrap up so this podcast is sponsored by logic locks logic locks creates and facilitates immersive real life games for the masses is your company looking for an activity to do for your next team outing play their online game show experience no pants required looking for a fright follow a curious researcher into the depths of the amsterdam catacombs from the relative safety of your own home check out logiclocks.com for more information the Beauty of Horror is also proudly sponsored by the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad. For more introspective, semi-academic, and fun podcasts, 
like this one, be sure to check out anatomyofascream.com. If you're interested in more of my musings on beauty and horror, horror in general, or just whatever's going on in my mind, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at underscore shockaholic, and you can check out my website, shockaholic.org. But dear listeners, I need to know, what are your thoughts on possession? I saw a lot of responses on Twitter when I mentioned I was watching it today. So I really, if, 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 if you're all my friends and you're listening, please let me know. How can you do that? You could either tell me on Twitter on the page for this podcast, which is at Beauty Horror Pod. You could email me, beautyofhorrorpod at gmail.com. You could go to our community space on Discord. DM me. I don't know. Find me. Tell me. Maybe leave a review and a comment on the, you know, an Apple podcast. That would be nice. But I want to thank you again, Heather, for taking the time to sit down with me and, and just having such a lovely discussion. So open. So I've noticed that so far it seems to me that disgust seems to open people up to more difficult conversations somehow. And I'm curious to see how this goes for the rest of the block. But it was a delight doing so with you. So for those who still need to find you. Maybe they've heard your name, but they're like, oh, I, I, you're on social media. I can find you places. <laughs> Where can people find you? And uh, do you have anything in the near future that maybe you want to plug? Yeah. Um, so for my writing, you can find me over at dailydead.com. Um, I've also been doing some work with fangoria.com, including for the upcoming uh, issue of the next magazine, I actually mm. was able to do the interview that's tied to the cover story for the next issue that comes out this spring, uh, which will be celebrating Ty West's X, which I'm, I'm very excited for people to get a chance to see. And um, also you can uh, currently purchase Monsters Makeup and Effects Volume 1 on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Apparently it's even on Target's website and Walmart's website, uh, which I didn't, didn't realize until a few weeks ago, which I thought was kind of funny. And I was like, oh, look at that. I'm like everywhere. Or you can find it over at AM Inc. Um, but most people just get their stuff from Amazon because it's so much easier and a little bit cheaper. And uh, in terms of social media, I'm just basically over on Twitter and you can find me there over at The Horror Chick. And be sure to check her out and get that book. And you've heard how many places have it. You can't escape it. Heather Wixon should be on your shelves. <laughs> that happens, everybody. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and talking about the beauty and the disgusting that lurks within the horrible. Goodbye. <laughs>